Thank you so much, Kevin and worship team, and the, uh, the small thunder of little feet leaving the room here is always a, a great one to hear, a reminder of life and the joy and fun that comes with that. Well, hey, it's, um, it's uh, Olympic season, uh, Olympic watchers, how many of you are watching some Olympics? Yep, all right. Uh, closing ceremonies broadcast tonight, uh, and that'll be interesting. And here's the interesting part: is that after the Olympics are over, all the venues, um, the, the lights go down, and the cameras, you know, camera and packman leave, reporters go, and all the medals are given away, and, and all that. Like, what do you do with the venues? They continue to be there, and they get reused for different things, which is rather interesting. Our family two years ago had a chance to travel out west, and we went to Salt Lake City, um, Utah, as part of our trip out west. And if you um, have any Olympic history to you, you might know that 2002, the Olympics, Winter Olympics, were held in Salt Lake City. And maybe some of you attended. I certainly did not, but whatever. And so we went to the Olympic Park in Salt Lake City, and they have reused that the Olympic venue for now a tubing area and a zip line and ropes course. And so if you've watched in the Olympics those um, ski jumpers who you know go down the hill and then jump on the quote-unquote normal hill, I love that. That's normal to jump that far, 100 and some meters or whatever, and then the large hill over here. But those guys that come down at whatever mile an hour and take off and fly, you know, do their thing, those get turned into tubing hills, at least in Salt Lake City they were. So our family tubed down. And if you ever have a fear of rug burn, it is not a good idea for you to go down that hill because you get going super fast and it gets really hot on that tube. So we went down, we tubed down there, had a great opportunity to do that. And then later in the day, toward the end of the day, as it was wrapping up, we're like, you know, we want to go on the other side of this uh, Olympic Park because over there near the... Um, I don't know what you call it, the luge or the um, um, bobsled track, you know, the sliding track. You can do that, and we didn't do that, um, but they created a ropes course, a rather large ropes course, and here's their description at Olympic Park about um, their, their uh, kind of tip of the iceberg, their, uh, their crown jewel is a better way to put it, of their um, Olympic Park. This thing that they call the drop tower. Uh, the description of the drop tower is this. It's, this advanced level adventure is designed, <laughs> great advanced level, because of course we are, right? As a family advanced. Anyway, is designed to test even the greatest thrill seekers. With a 377 foot long zip line high above the treetops, the zip line ride finishes at the 65 foot high drop tower. From the drop tower, the only way down is to step off the platform for an exhilarating 65 foot free fall. That exhilarating? So here, my friends, is actually a picture of a live human being at the base of said drop tower in Olympic Park in Salt Lake City. So just get a picture of the regular size human being. They're looking up, and this is what they're looking up to. Up there is where you end up with a little helmet on. <clears throat> that should cover it, right? And you are told as you walk onto that um, ropes course, you will end up at the 65-foot drop tower, and they tell you, do not put this helmet on if you are not ready to step off that tower, because that is the only way down, and it is a way down, I will tell you that. So here's what it actually looks like from our vantage point on that day, two summers ago, and it's going to be a little blurry, but that actually is a real person up there, and then down here, circled there now for you. These are real people all the way on the ground. In fact, that actually is my wife, Jen, and my daughter, Megan, down at the ground. That's what they look like from up there. They're really small. But the good news is, not only are they small, here's the most important thing, they actually are alive. Because they just stepped off the drop tower as well, and then the rest of our family, we were waiting our turn at the edge of that drop tower. Now, if you have never done something like that before, it is an interesting phenomenon. 
Because here's what I learned as I was standing there at the edge of the drop tower, that standing on the ledge of the drop tower, we found ourselves in the intersection of belief and courage. It's exactly where we found ourselves. When we looked down and we saw no dead bodies lying down there. In fact, we saw live bodies of people who had actually done just what we had done, and we were secured with our little rope, and, and we had the helmet. And so I believed that this system would work, and yet there's something in me that needed to take the courage and fought with the courage to just walk off into nothing and free fall down, and we found ourselves in the exact intersection of belief and courage with the question of where are you going to go? And here's what I learned, that it was entirely possible to believe without having the courage to act on that belief. Entirely possible. In fact, standing there in the ledge of that drop tower, if you were to ask me, do you believe in the system? Yep. Why do you believe? Because there's people alive down there. I just saw them do that. Okay. Now, I want you to call a crane in and get me off of this stupid drop tower. I mean, that's kind of what I was feeling like. Like, I don't want to, to take the necessary courage to act on the belief that I'm telling you that I have. And it's entirely possible to live, is it not, in a world where belief is possible but courage can be absent. And here's the interesting thing for me, and I, the interesting thing I want to talk with you about this morning, is this strange paradox that often if you call yourself a Christian or if you know people who are Christians, sometimes they'll call themselves this word, ready? Believers. And when Jesus walked the planet, he invited people not to become believers, but to become followers. And there's an important distinction because you can be a believer and do nothing with that. Believer means almost nothing when it comes to do you have the courage to put that belief into action. Jesus didn't call us just simply to believe. Called us to follow and to take courage. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, says in James chapter one, like, don't come on, don't deceive yourselves. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that is enough just to hear, just to believe. If you've been in church and grew up in church at all, you may know the old uh, kids song, and some of you may want to break into song on this one. But the uh, the wise man built his house upon the what the Rock, if you don't know that, that's quite all right. You are, there's a past for you, but many of us know that song. The wise man built his house upon the rock, but the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Some of us know the motions to that, right? Okay. And the difference between the wise man and the foolish man, when Jesus tells, he tells a real story that we turn into a good children's song, right? The difference between the wise and the foolish man is not what they heard. They both heard the same thing. The difference between the wise and the foolish man is what they did, that the wise man did something with what he heard, but the foolish man just heard it. I would say that he was just a believer. But he wasn't a follower like the wise man was. He didn't do, take the step off that ledge. And we found ourselves on that ledge, in that space, in that intersection. <laughs> I believe it. All right? Now do you have the nerve, the courage, put that belief into action. We are in the life of Peter in this series. We're a five-part series in the study of Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' followers, and he 
had incredible nerve, but he also had, in my opinion, very practical faith that was based on something, not just on belief itself. You may have heard me say before, and I've heard it from someone else before, we don't ask people to believe in belief, if that makes sense. Well, we don't want Christians to believe just in belief. We want people to believe in Jesus and the works that he has done. And so when we invite people to believe, we want you to believe not just in the concept of belief or the good feeling around belief. We want you actually to look at Jesus and say, was he real? Believe in Jesus, not just in faith and not just in belief. And so Peter, I think, had a very practical approach, very practical and very sold out approach to belief. When Peter first met Jesus, and we covered this last week, he, he comes with his brother Andrew, who was kind of like a Messiah seeker. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and, and Andrew and John were looking for the Messiah, and then they finally found him, and Andrew came home to Simon Peter, his brother, and said, come with me to meet the one that I've been talking about. And so he walks up to Jesus, Simon Peter does, and if you remember from last week, Peter's first exposure to Jesus is that Jesus says, hey, you're, you're Simon. Now I'm going to change your name. You're going to be called Cephas. To which we hear Peter say absolutely nothing and do absolutely nothing. In fact, all that we, the record we have in the Bible is that Peter then walks away and goes back to his fishing business. Like that did not really have an impact on him at all. He just continued to do what he did. And then Jesus went on to perform miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. All the while, as far as we know, Peter is still running his very successful fishing business. In other words, he's not just believing in the effects of Jesus' ministry, as if we just believe because everyone else is believing, so let's just believe in belief. When Jesus came to meet Peter and interact with Peter, he said to Peter that one morning after he'd been teaching, he said, Peter, I want you to push the boat out into the water and throw the nets out on the other side. And this is what we covered last week. And Peter's like, Jesus, you're not a fisherman, but if you want me to, I will. And he went out and he threw the nets over and brought this huge haul of fish. That's when Peter said, I'm all in. In fact, I'm leaving my nets here now and my boat and my friends if I need to, but I'm all in because of what Jesus has done, believing in the works of Jesus. And he went all in, but he didn't go all in earlier, but he certainly did go all in there. And as we finished last week, Peter Ultimately, over time, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And finally, Peter was the one who identified, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter's story is going to be one of great success and also one followed by failure. And Peter not only said, you're Christ, Son of the living God, but immediately then on the back end of that story, Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, you shouldn't have to go through the death that you're talking about here at all. To which Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. To go from the hero of the faith to Satan himself crazy run for Peter. But this is Peter. And so in this series on Peter called Got the Nerve, what I want to do with him is look at three different panels of Peter's life. This is the first story. It's a story that many of you may have heard. We're going to pick up the story of Peter and finding himself in a very um, familiar place for him, one that you may know this story of. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew uh, chapter 14 is where we're going to land this morning. Uh, it's the first book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible you find near you is our gift to you. We'd love you to, to have that and take that home with you if you would like. But Matthew chapter 14 is in the right two-thirds of your Bible. And just for some context, we're going to be picking up at verse 22. Just for some context... Um, Jesus is, uh, has just interacted with, 
a whole group of people, maybe 5,000 people, and maybe more than actually, and uh, had a miraculous feeding, the feeding of the 5,000. He took five loaves, two fish, and multiplied them, and everybody ate. And so we're coming off of that moment where there's this teaching. Jesus spent all day teaching and feeding a large group of people who had tracked out into the countryside to meet Jesus. So there was no grocery stores available, right? There was no food available, and Jesus fed them all. And so this is the end of that moment. Imagine this large group of people having been there all day with Jesus, and we pick it up at the end at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd, which has to be troubling in its own right, in my opinion. Verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, the Lake of Galilee is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And so 13 long, 8 wide, the disciples left one side of it to go to the other. I don't know if you ever rowed, R-O-W-E-D, rowed, 8 miles or rowed, 13. I don't know where it was. I don't know exactly how many miles, but that's a long way to go. This is not a small little event. So the disciples alone, this is interesting, imagine that, the one whom they had gathered around, who by his hands these things were happening, by his teaching people were coming. He said, you go into the boat and go off on your own. That would trouble me alone. Like, Jesus, I'm here for you, right? Like, you're the reason that I'm here. But he sent them alone, and for apparently hours they were rowing across the Lake of Galilee while Jesus is praying. It's kind of crazy. That's a long time into the middle of the night, into the fourth watch of the night, actually. Verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Sure he did. So that's normal, right? The fourth watch is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. We don't know when that is, but between 3 and 6. Imagine the lighting on a lake between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. You might have some moonlight. You might, if you're closer to 6, begin, just begin to have pre-dawn uh, light come over the horizon. Or you might have just a little bit, but it's weird. And you also, by the way, you have been rowing all night. It's not as if you're the freshest you know, tulip in the garden. I just made that phrase up right there. I don't know what you'd be. I don't know if I'd call a fisherman a tulip anyway, but you get the point, right? Like your sensibilities are kind of gone. You're just, you've been going all night rowing, and we find out that they've been actually dealing with a storm as well. But look at verse 26. So the disciples who had been alone and, and had to have been, I mean had to have been, just put yourself in the boat for a minute. When they get in the boat and Jesus says, go to the other side, can you imagine, do they just sit there and row? I'm like, they're going to talk about the day. They're going to debrief. Can you believe he did that? And you know, hey, did you get any extra food? Did anyone bring a fish along and bread? And you're like, I'm, I'm hungry. Did you see what, the way that they interacted with that? And someone, you know, threw up in the corner where they had a date too much. You know, that's what happens with buffets, you know, sometimes. Anyway, so you have to have all this conversation about what just happened through the day. They're processing it all. And the, the disciples, verse 26, they saw him walking on the lake. Again, the the lighting is not that awesome. It's just kind of just enough light to see what's going on. And they were terrified. And they're tired too, right? They're not processing everything. The middle of the night had been a long day. And so it's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Sure. I mean, I don't know what else I would do. Probably the same thing. But Jesus immediately said to them, 
take belief. <laughs> right? Take belief. Like, don't you believe? <laughs> I mean, your, your version probably says the right thing. Take courage or take heart, depending on what version you have. This isn't take belief. This isn't hold on to the belief you have. This is actually take courage. If you have a version that says take heart, that it's the same concept. Like, take heart. Take courage. Take courage. It is, it is I. Don't be afraid. <laughs> and that, I think, is what prompted Peter to do what he did. Because Jesus' call there is to, like, you're at the intersection of belief and courage. Take courage. Come on. Take courage. Believe now. Activate that belief. You've been believing in me as the Son of God. Listen. I'm walking on the water. Big deal. Like you just saw five loaves and two fish. I know you're tired, but come on. Take courage. Activate the belief you have inside of you. And I think that activated Peter. Because Peter is a very practically oriented, all-in kind of guy. He'll act on it now and think about it later. That's exactly why he followed Jesus. He dropped the nets and all of a sudden the fish burst the nets out. And that did not happen at night. It happened during the day when it shouldn't have. Jesus made it happen. If he made it happen, and I can't do it when I should, and he's making it happen, I'm going to follow him. So if, if it's Jesus coming along, and Peter's in that boat, and he's been yakking all night with his friends, and Jesus comes along and he says, take courage, do you think that would get right into the stream, right into the heart, right into the channel of what Peter already wants to do, take courage? So Peter reacts. He's the only one that we see reacting. And Peter says in verse 28, uh, Lord, if it's you... Tell me to come to you on the water. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight on this. I don't think this was the wisest thing to say. Think, think about this for a minute. If it's a ghost, let's play it the other way. Play devil's advocate with the Bible for a minute. If this were a ghost who had evil intent, what do you think the ghost would say? Come on out, Peter, it is me. Right? I mean, this is a terrible qualifying statement to make. Like, that is not what you want to do. Like, if that, this, actual, this is not a good way to distinguish whether this thing you're seeing is good or bad. Like, tell me to come out on the water, because if I say, yes, come out, and I'm trying to kill you, then I will succeed. Like, this doesn't make sense. But secondly, it's very interesting that he could have asked another question. He could have, or made another statement. He could have said, Jesus, if this is you... Cause all the fish to jump into the boat like you did before. Cause the sun to rise right now. Cause this storm to settle down. But isn't it interesting that without even really, apparently, thinking much about it, maybe he thought about it, I doubt he did. I think he just was like, my whole life is in your hands. So, man, if it's you, then enable me. That's what the Greek means, not just call me, but enable me, allow me, in other words, empower me to do the things that you are doing. And so if it actually is you walking on that water, like I saw you do the fish thing, that's why I followed you in the first place. I just saw your hands break bread and break fish and create feeding for thousands of people. Like if it's you, empower me to do the very thing that you are doing because my life is in your hands. You want me to take courage? I'll take courage. Just enable me. Empower me to do it. I'm putting my life in your hands. It's crazy. Meanwhile, the rest of the disciples are like, I'm glad he said that. You know, there he goes, out the boat. All right. That's what Peter does. So Jesus, verse 29, come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Now, when we put our little helmets on to get ready for our ropes course event at Olympic Park, we were told the only way down 
is to step off a 65-foot tower to your demise. No, and that's the way you get down. And they were, they were clear, that is the only way to get down. We will not come rescue you, to which I knew in the back of my mind, no, actually, you will. Like, if I make big enough stink, you're going to come rescue me. I know that. But that's okay. That's all right. Like, we'll, I'll buy into that for now. So we, we finally, as we're moving along through the zip lines and all that, we know, and I know, like, at the end of it is going to come the test of courage. Will you step off the tower, whoosh, and you fly quickly, by the way, when there's a free fall. At 32 feet a second squared, that is gravity. I know that's all the science I'm going to give you today. But 32 feet a second squared, you're, and we have 65 feet to go. Within one second, you're halfway to the ground already. Boom, you're, woo, you're already halfway down. It happens really fast, by the way. Okay? Some of you may be skydiving and like, what's wrong with you, buddy? 65 feet? You're kidding me? I did you know, 20,000 or whatever. 65 was a big deal for me. On the way to that ledge, I had time for second thoughts. On the way to that ledge, I had plenty of time for second thoughts. Like, I don't know if this is a good idea. Maybe if I stub my toe, maybe if one of the kids gets sick, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe there's another way to do it. Peter, after he decides to do it, has time for second thoughts. And so do you, and so do I. Every time that we decide, you know what? Today's the day. I'm ready to move. I haven't been active the way I should have been. I'm going to make this step. I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to take the step of courage in this intersection between belief and courage. I'm ready now. Like I'm ready to do it. And every time we take that step, there's always time for second thoughts. And what happens in your second thoughts is you begin to rehearse all the reasons why this was the dumbest idea in the world. Why actually you're never going to break the habit that you think now I'm finally resolved to break. Why your marriage will always continue to be what it is even though you thought maybe it could be more and why your faith maybe is going to be this size when you actually really want it to be this size. Like you're reminded in the step off right about when you're about to take that step of courage, you're reminded why you didn't do this before. It doesn't work. Because you know your history, you know your past, you know the disappointments and you know the struggles and the failures. And this is where Peter finds himself. He's taking the step out of the boat, a step of courage. And then all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, 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 second thoughts. Look at the text. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And he said, you have little faith. He said, why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus says to Peter, You have little faith. Peter began to doubt, and here's the deal with doubt, that doubt means being pulled in two different directions at one time. That's what this idea means. Being pulled in two different directions at one time. Here's where Peter was pulled. He's sitting in the boat over here, And he sees Jesus walking over there, and he says, if this is you, enable, empower me to do the same thing. And Jesus says, come on, come on. If Jesus, who just turned your fishing industry upside down with a miraculous catch of fish, says, come on, I'm going to take courage to step out to you. And in this stepping, then all of a sudden, I'm pulled out to realize why I did not do this before. Because I've never been in this space here, out of the boat, 
and on my way to Jesus. I've never been here. Now I'm pulled back in this direction, but it's too late because I'm already out and I'm pulled in two different directions. I'm pulled towards my ideal of what I want, what I hope for, what I believe God might be leading me to or calling me for. I'm pulled toward that ideal, and yet I'm drawn back to the real, to the struggle that is there. And If you want to know the answer to the question that Jesus asked Peter, why did you doubt, Peter? Why did you doubt? You want to know why I doubted Jesus? You want to know why I doubted? I'm going to start with the wind. Did you hear it? I'm going to continue with the little thing under my feet called water. I'm going to remind you, Jesus, if you need reminded, that every single time, every time that I step on water that has any depth to it, I sink. Jesus, I'm going to remind you that my mom told me that after I eat lunch, I have to wait 30 minutes before I jump in the pool with my friends or else the world will explode. Like, I'm going to tell you that and remind you that every time, every time, Jesus, did you see how much food I ate at the feeding of 5,000? I snuck some of those fish and bread. You know it, and I weigh a little bit more now, and I already sink anyway, Jesus. Do you want to know why I doubt it? Because wisdom tells me to doubt. Because every other time, every time that I have done this, I fall in the water. What a crazy question. Why did you doubt? Of course I would doubt. Because this is all that I'm ever used to. Did you ever think that maybe, come on, maybe, just because Every other time we've tried something and it has failed. That when we come to that intersection again of trying again, that it is an intersection of belief and courage. And that if we give up on the courage, all we're doing is building a house on the sand. And all we're doing is standing at the top of the drop tower, unable and unwilling paralyzed by fear, to take the step off. And all we are are believers and not followers. And there's a big difference between the two. The truth is, the truth is this, the doubt blows in with the wind, doesn't it? The doubt blows in with the wind. That's what happened to Peter. See, it's in the text. He steps out of the boat And when, Matthew says, he writes, when he saw the wind, or when he experienced the wind, when the wind hit him, and they'd been rowing against the wind all the time. But the wind blew in with it, the doubt. Began to pull him the other way. I'm telling you, you know this is true for you. When you're ready, when you're ready to take that next step of faith, of trust, of belief, of doing the things that you know that you should do, when you take that step into a new space, when you finally in that intersection of I'm just a believer, I'm going to be courageous, when you're in that intersection, you take a step of faith and belief. The wind blows into your mind and into your soul and into your conscience reminders of all the reasons why you failed before. And all the reasons why this is a bad idea. And you're reminded instinctively and intuitively, God, I don't think I have the resources. I don't think I have the heart for it. I don't think I have the mind for it. I don't think I have the abilities anymore. Right? 
doubt blows in with the wind. And Jesus says, why, why, why did you doubt? Just because you have every good reason to? Just because every time you step on the water, you sink, really? Have you seen what I've done with the loaves and the fishes? Have you seen what I did with the fish thing? Now tell me again, why do you doubt? Oh, because it's never worked before? Because your family will always be this way? Because you're never going to be able to forgive? Because you're never going to be the leader you thought? Because you're always going to see and hear whispers of your own inadequacies and failures in the back of your mind as the winds of doubt blow through you? Is that why you're doubting? To which Jesus says, look, look to me. Peter's story, I mentioned this last week, Peter's story of faith is a story that's checkered with failure. And that's what I want to convey as we walk this journey. Just because you may fail again, like Peter, stepping out of the boat is the first step of courage, and then he begins to sink. This is Peter. This is faith. Stepping out of the boat for you, I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what step of courage that you need to take to activate the things that you say you believe in. But I don't want you, and I know you don't want, to just end up being a believer. I don't want to stand on the top of the drop tower and just be like, yeah, I believe. Right? I'm a belief. You're not called to be just a believer, but to be a follower. The follower takes that step of courage and does what belief reminds you is the smartest thing to do, to take courage, to do the things that we know we need to do. So in that space with Peter, I just want to normalize this. Peter's life is a life of courage and failure, courage and failure, courage and failure, courage and failure. But you know it as well as I. If someone takes two, three steps forward and one or two back, they're still one step ahead of where they were, right? And this is a story of Peter, the story of the only disciple who interacted with Jesus. In this moment, he said, call me out, empower me to do what you want me to do. And when the winds of doubt came, sunk. Peter, I get it. Because I was just as nervous as anybody on the top of that drop tower. And when I looked down, I'm like, yep, this is a bad idea. And I'm telling you, when you step, it is an exhilarating and scary and fearful proposition. But just because it will make you terribly uncomfortable does not mean that you should not take that step. Peter's story, I can relate to. I hope you can too. Next week, we're going to look at another panel, another activity, another story of Peter's life. Welcome you to come back for that. Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in your word, to see the story of Peter again, to see this boat and walking on water event. And I pray that you would help us as we step into these spaces where belief and courage intersect. I pray that we would not just be believers, quote-unquote, that this may not be our ultimate legacy, that, yep, I believed intellectually. Jesus is a Savior, yep, he's powerful, yep, he's omniscient, yep, he knows me, yep. Father, help us not to, to simply believe that and not activate the courage it takes to follow I pray for those of us who are fighting anxiety and worry and wondering about the future of our world and for our our children and our families. I pray that you would help us to activate our faith and to step into courage to believe that you indeed are sovereign and you indeed are caring and you are present. I pray for those of us struggling 
with forgiveness and loving our spouses the way that we need to. I pray that you would give us the courage to see how we can serve and love and care in meaningful ways. Those who are dealing with habits that need to be broken and struggling, thinking that we'd never, ever be able to break out of those. Give us the courage, Father, to step out of the boat. And when the wind blows in the doubt, remind us again to look to you who has called us to something greater. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us not just to believe, not just to hear and build our house in the sand, but to do and therefore not deceive ourselves and to follow, to be people who at the intersection of belief and courage step out onto the water and step out over the ledge that our lives can be a testimony to your power and your strength and your love and your care for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.